Well, take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 7, and uh, we are going to finish up this chapter this morning as we consider this epic invitation that Jesus gave at the end of the Feast of Booze. Let me just ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Father, we just thank you for your word, and in light of all the other things we've already talked about, Lord, there are so many things that are pressing on our minds and our hearts, and I pray you just help us to zero in now on your words here in this text, and that your spirit would illuminate us so that we would understand what these verses mean, and also help us make application of them to our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would use your word to cause people to come to know Christ this morning, and for people to grow in Christ this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've all heard of the Fountain of Youth, that legendary spring that supposedly restores the youth of anyone who drinks or bathes in its waters. Tales of this magical fountain have been recounted throughout the centuries for thousands of years around the world, and over time, the Fountain of Youth has become linked most closely with the 16th century explorer Juan Ponce de Leon, who allegedly searched for it when he traveled... uh, to, to Florida back in 1513. And uh, Florida, in fact, continues to capitalize on this legend through a popular tourist attraction in St. Augustine called Ponce de Leon's Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park that claims to be the fountain that Ponce de Leon discovered. Anybody been there in Florida? Anybody actually drank from that? Huh? You actually drank from it. Well, that's why you're looking so good, right? Um, <laughs> I found that the, you guys know George and Jeannie Hebner, right? The ageless senior couple, right? They raised their hand this morning and said, now you tell us, okay? You've been holding out on us why you look so good, right? In your 50s and 60s because they drank from the Fountain of Youth, right? In Florida. Well, hundreds of visitors buy tickets to drink from that sulfur-spewing uh, stone well every day, and yet none of them have gotten any younger or have stayed young forever, And despite the fact that the whole story has been debunked as fiction rather than historical fact, the myth of the fountain of youth continues to live on. One history professor at uh, a well-known university here in the United States said this, quote, people are more intrigued by the story of looking and not finding than they are by the idea that the fountain might be out there somewhere. How bizarre is that? That we're intrigued by the story of looking and not finding than we are that it actually could be out there. In other words, the fountain of youth, while intriguing, everyone knows it's just wishful thinking. The reality is, I hate to break it to you this morning, that we're all going to get old and die. That's what we're doing right now. We're all sitting here getting older, and one day we're all going to die. And yet, there is something in our psyche that wants to believe that there's a way that we can live forever. And I think the fountain of youth is just one of many worldly notions that mankind has conjured up throughout our existence to simply express the hope of eternal life that is within all of our hearts. You say, well, how did did it get there? Well, the Bible says God put it there. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says that God has set eternity in our hearts. In other words, there's a reason why we're intrigued by the story of the looking But there's no reason we have to settle for the not finding. Our problem is not looking for a way to live forever, but it's not looking for eternal life in the right place. 
We're just like the people of the Old Testament that God rebuked in Jeremiah 2.13. He said, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so believe it or not, the, the, the fountain of youth concept is not far off base. It's a fountain, yes, that we should be looking for, but that's not the one. I mean, what if I told you this morning that there was an actual fountain that makes anyone who drinks from it immortal? Would you believe me? It's not a legend or a myth, a fairy tale. It's not just wishful thinking. It is the truth of the Word of God. And God cried out in the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, He said, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance, incline your ear, and come to me, listen that you may live. That you may live. Well, this classic invitation to salvation in the Old Testament was repeated by God's Son in the New Testament. And it's found here in John chapter 7, verses 37 and 38, where Jesus likened himself to a fountain of water and invited people to come to him and drink so that they could have eternal life in heaven. We know that Jesus was in attendance at the Feast of Booze at this time, which which the Jews would celebrate every year in Jerusalem to commemorate God's provision for them during their wilderness wandering before they had a permanent home in the promised land. And the feast involved elaborate daily rituals, one of which was the water ritual. And what happened was that the people would follow a priest to the pool of Siloam every morning where he would fill this golden pitcher with water and he would carry it back to the temple while the people sang psalms and and waved these tree branches. And when the great procession entered the temple area through the water gate, trumpets would sound and the priest would circle the altar and then ascend the ramp to the altar and hold up the pitcher for all to see. And that's when the crowd would shout for the priest to hold it up higher, which he would, And then he would pour out the water on the altar, symbolizing God's miraculous provision of water from a rock. If you remember in the wilderness, right, that God told Moses to strike the rock and water came out. That was to symbolize this miraculous provision of water, but also to symbolize the blessings to come that would be poured out in the blessed messianic age when the Messiah would come. And so we learned last week that halfway through this this week-long celebration, Jesus showed up at the temple and he began to teach. And in no uncertain terms, he claimed to be the fulfillment of the Feast of Booth. He was the Messiah, which all this elaborate ritual and tradition was anticipating. And and we looked uh, again last Sunday at verses 14 through 36, where Jesus made several controversial claims regarding who he was, where he came from, and where he was going. And the Jewish religious leaders were so incensed by Christ's claims that they sent a team of security officers to arrest Jesus. And they got there, these security guards got there just in time to hear Jesus make his climactic claim 
at the pinnacle moment of the Feast of Booths. And we're going to see this morning in verses 37 through 53 how John recorded this dramatic invitation that Jesus gave along with the mixed reaction of the crowd and the leaders. And so I've just broken this up into two sections. We've got, first of all, the heartwarming invitation, verses 37 through 39, and then secondly, the heartbreaking division in verses 40 through 53. If you didn't grab an outline this morning, you can grab one in the back. You can follow along. It's also got some application questions on the back that you can use in your grow group uh, tonight or this week or even just your own personal family time or your own personal devotions. But let's look first of all at the heartwarming invitation, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And so here John sets this final section apart from what he's already communicated, what he's already recorded about Jesus at this Feast of Booths, because this was the final day, the the greatest day, the pinnacle moment of this feast, the, the climax of this feast. And it was possibly while the priest was actually pouring the water on the altar, or maybe just after he finished, that Jesus stood up, and it says with a loud voice so that no one would not hear him, He invited people to place their faith in him as the one who had been anticipated every time this water ritual was performed. For centuries, they had been going through this religious motion, reenacting a tradition that ultimately could never satisfy their hearts. And so Jesus invited them to find that satisfaction that they were missing in him. Notice the universal call here. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink, which is an illustration of the universal nature of the gospel. The gospel is for everyone. It's not just for a select group of people. It's for everyone. There is no one who cannot and will not be saved if they truly come to Christ in repentance and faith. The only condition is that you have to be thirsty. He says, if anyone is thirsty. In other words, you need to be aware of the fact that you are a hell-bound sinner who desperately needs a Savior. And that you can't be found if you're not lost, right? You need to know you're lost before you can be found. And you can't be saved from your sin and receive eternal life by coming to church or getting baptized or any other tradition or ritual. Notice what he says. He says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to who? To me. Come to me. You need to come to Christ. Only Christ can save you. And he says they need to come to me and they need to drink. They need to drink. Jesus has already mentioned this same analogy back in chapter 6. He talked about drinking and eating him, which sounds kind of weird, right, at first. But we know it was just an analogy for believing in him. Notice verse 38. He who believes in me, that's what he's talking about. Drinking is synonymous with believing. So to drink Christ means to appropriate Christ and his work in our lives, to trust him as our Lord and Savior, to take him into our lives like we would a glass of water, right? When we drink that glass of water, it goes into our bodies. And so he says they need to come and they need to drink. And then notice along with this invitation, 
Jesus gave a promise to anyone who believed in him that not only would they have all their spiritual needs supplied, but rivers of spiritual blessing would flow from their lives to others. He says, verse 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, quote, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Now, this isn't a direct quote from the Old Testament, but simply a summary of many passages in the Old Testament that say that those who accepted the Messiah would be blessed and would be a blessing, a channel of blessing to others. And so his point is simply this, when a person comes to Christ, not only are they blessed, but they're able to bless others. You say, how do I do that? Well, I think the first way you bless others is to tell others about Christ, right? You come to Christ, and then your joy in Christ overflows, and you want to tell others about Christ, and how they can know Christ, and have the joy and the peace that you have as a Christian, So you evangelize the lost, you also build up the saints, and it's basically allowing your spiritual life to to spill over and impact those around you. And so the question is, how is your life impacting those around you? Is your life impacting other people in this church? Is your life impacting other people in your community, uh, at your workplace, in your home, right? I mean, if, if Christ is truly in you, then there should just be this overflow, right, that should be blessing and impacting those around you. And if that's not happening, I guess you need to go back to the source and say, is there really a river of living water flowing in my life? Do I even know Christ? By the way, that phrase, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. We're like, oh, okay. Rivers of living water. Okay, I've heard that before. It's not a very impressive image to us because we live where there's plenty of water. Rivers are commonplace things. But for the Jews, living in the arid climate of Palestine, when, when they heard this, will flow rivers of living water. This was, a, this was a magnificent image to them because water is, was, is, it was and it still is scarce in, in, in Israel, and, and rivers are literally the source of life. I mean, everything revolves around the rivers and the bodies of water there, which are limited. And so this is a beautiful and powerful picture, and I'll never forget when we were on the tour bus driving uh, from Galilee uh, up to Jerusalem uh, several years ago when we took a tour of Israel with some people in our church. The tour guide was talking about uh, how proud the Israelites are of their irrigation systems. And, and it's amazing, you drive through Israel and it's just really a kind of a desert land and, and yet you see all these groves of trees and, and fruits and plants and gardens and fields and you're like, man, how are they doing that? And, and she said that, that our, our guide said that people come from all over the world to learn how to irrigate crops uh, through what the Israelis have learned to utilize. Um, why? Because they have to manage their water in, 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 in um, strategic ways because it's so limited. Notice what he's talking about here, though. What is this rivers of living water? Well, John provides us a little bit of an interpretation, so we know exactly what he was talking about. John said, But this, Jesus spoke of the Spirit, from whom those, uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit is not yet, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So living water that would flow from Uh, the hearts of Christ's true followers like a river is the Holy Spirit. In other words, all who receive Christ 
as the Son of God, also receive the Spirit of God. It's a package deal. You receive Jesus, you get the Spirit. In fact, it's the Spirit, God's Spirit, that makes salvation possible to begin with. The Spirit illuminates our minds, regenerates our hearts, grants us repentance and faith, right? All this, and at the moment of salvation, He baptizes and indwells us. We know the ministry of the Holy Spirit well, right? We're, we're beneficiaries of that great blessing of the Holy Spirit. But notice that the comment that John makes here, it's, at first might be a little confusing, or at least would cause us some questions. He says, for the Spirit had not yet, was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. By this we spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive. They hadn't received it yet. For the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, what is that all about? Well, we know that phrase, glorified, when Jesus was glorified, he's talking about his crucifixion, his resurrection, right? And his ascension. And so when Jesus ascended back to heaven and was glorified at the right hand of the Father in heaven, the Spirit descended as he had promised on the day of Pentecost. Acts 1.8 and you will remain in Jerusalem, right? And you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. And from that day forward, from the day of Pentecost on, every true believer in Jesus Christ has been instantly and permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not to say that the Holy Spirit was not present and was not active before the day of Pentecost. And it's been traditionally understood that the Holy Spirit would come upon people for temporary acts of service in the Old Testament. Um, we know the Holy Spirit inspired prophets and, and empowered kings. I mean, if you ever wonder if the, if, where was the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, you just have to read verses like Psalm 51, uh, verse 11, where David said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me or the Spirit from me. Uh, Psalm 139, verse 7, the psalmist says, where could I go to escape your spirit, right? And so the Spirit of God was active in the Old Testament. You say, well, how active? Well, interesting. Turn to John 14. We're, we're there in John, just a few pages to the right. John 14, 17. Jesus makes another comment here about the Spirit to the disciples in the upper room. John 14, 17, he says, he's talking about the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. So this is helpful. He's saying, listen, the spirit of God is already abiding with you. But he's going to be what? In you. Makes a distinction here. So far, the spirit of God has been abiding with his people with all who ever believed throughout redemptive history, the Holy Spirit has been abiding with them. And we know that has to be the case because no one would ever get saved or, or could, they never could be sanctified or empowered for service or have the word illuminated without the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? But there's a, a fuller, completer outpouring of the Holy Spirit for those of us living in the church age that Jesus was, was promising that we have the privilege of experiencing the work of the Holy Spirit unlike anything that has ever been seen in the past of redemption history. And I think this is important because some people have taken this too far in the church today. 
and expect to have all these crazy experiences uh, with the Holy Spirit. But notice the connection that John makes here in verse 39, but this he spoke of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not given yet because Jesus was not yet glorified. There's a connection here between receiving the Spirit and Jesus being glorified, which I think establishes a safeguard for understanding the role of the Holy Spirit today in the church. And the role of the Holy Spirit is not to glorify himself, but to glorify Christ. And it seems like in a lot of the charismania that's going on in the church today that it seems that it's all about the Holy Spirit. That you would think it's that, that the Holy Spirit is there attracting attention to himself and that's not at all the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit is to direct people to who? To Jesus. Jesus should be the focus of people's attention, not the Holy Spirit. But we'll talk some more about the Holy Spirit when we get to the upper room discourse in chapters 14, 15, and 16, because Jesus has a lot more to say about the Holy Spirit, we'll, we'll wait until then to talk more in depth about the crucial ministry of the Holy Spirit. I probably just said enough this morning to create all these questions in your mind now, right? Well, hang in there. We'll get to, 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 to the answers in, later on in chapters 14, 15, and 16. That, that was a teaser, right? This is a little teaser in verse 39. Hey, the Spirit is going to come. You're going to receive the Spirit in a unique and special way when I'm glorified. So that's the heartwarming invitation. Now let's look at the heartbreaking division. The heartbreaking division. In in the last section here of chapter 7, John recorded the mixed reactions to to Jesus' moving invitation. And, And I would just say that I think these are the same exact reactions that people have to Christ today. Um, in fact, you're going to see yourself in one of these groups of peoples because every one of us has, has reacted or is reacting or responding to Jesus Christ. Whether you realize it or not, you are responding, you are reacting to Jesus Christ this morning. And you're going you're gonna to see yourself in one of these groups of people. Notice the first group, verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendant of David? And from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so initially, some were convinced that Jesus was the prophet. This prophet was was a, a reference to the prophet that Moses had prophesied about in Deuteronomy 18. Um, they've already mentioned, John's already mentioned this in John chapter 6, verse 14. And by the way, they were right. Jesus was the prophet that Moses had foretold about. Um, in fact, Peter confirms that in Acts chapter 3, verse 22. He, he quotes Deuteronomy 18 and, and applies it to Jesus. Others said, this is the Christ. In other words, they acknowledged him as the Messiah, which by the way, the prophet uh, that Moses was talking about was the Messiah And so these people were essentially saying the same thing. The prophet was the Messiah. The Messiah was the prophet. And so there was those who were acknowledging that, acknowledging that, embracing that, and maybe even committing their lives by faith to Christ. But then there were others who thought, well, sure, that sounds right, but surely Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? I mean, the scriptures are clear that Christ, the Messiah, would come from the descendants of David and from 
Bethlehem, the village where David was. So they thought, this is impossible. He can't be the Messiah. That's not an option because he's, he comes from Galilee and we know that the Old Testament clearly states the Messiah would be a descendant of David and be born in David's hometown of Bethlehem. And we're like, yeah, exactly. And if they had just done their homework, they would have discovered that's exactly who Jesus was. He was a direct descendant of David through Mary and he was born in Bethlehem. And so the very passages that that convinced Jesus' critics that he couldn't be the Messiah are the very passages that provide the greatest evidence, the, the strongest proof that he is the Messiah. And I think this is just typical of, of people who reject Christ. They don't even know who or what they're rejecting. I mean, the facts are clearly there, but they, they never take the time to honestly examine the evidence and seriously seek out the truth and, and, and find the answers to their questions. Praise God for men like Josh McDowell, right? Who had all these questions and were skeptical about Christianity. And, and, and so he set out to find, Josh McDowell set out to, 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 to really basically prove the resurrection false. And he couldn't. There was too much evidence. There was more historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ than any other event in world history. And as a result, he, he trusted Christ as the Lord and Savior, wrote evidence that demands a verdict. Helpful book. Thankful for a guy who did his homework, right? And took it very seriously and, and honestly examined the evidence. Notice verse 43. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. Verse 43 is really key here. So a division occurred in the crowd because of Christ, which should come as no surprise because Jesus himself warned that that was the effect he would have on people. Remember Matthew chapter 10, verse 34? He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a what? A sword. He said, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. In Luke chapter 12, verse 51, do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. From now on, five members in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, father uh, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. That sounds like a family mess, doesn't it? Well, who causes that mess sometimes? Sometimes we cause our own mess, right? There's a reason why there's mother-in-law jokes, right? I mean, we, we get in trouble sometimes in relationships, but this conflict, this division has nothing to do with necessarily our sinful attitudes and actions towards one another. It, it has to do with our commitment to Christ. And some of you know exactly what this is all about because you, in some ways, dread Thanksgiving and Christmas when you get together for the family because it's not a peaceful environment at all, is it? Because either you're the only believer in your family or maybe half of you are believers and the other half aren't. I mean, I remember, you know, when and Kelly's folks were still alive and we would go up to their, their house uh, for Christmas and uh, her mom would always ask me to, to give a little devotional before we open up the presents. Well, Kelly's parents were cool with that. And we were cool with that, and we wanted our kids to have that. But guess what? The other part of the family could care less about that. And you could tell it was just like every time 
I said, okay, guys, let's, I'm going to share a little devotional. He's like, oh, here we go again. Another Christmas devotional from the pastor, right? And, and it was just like, it, it divided the family and it made it very awkward. And I wasn't being a jerk and saying, okay, y'all need to repent and believe and you're going to hell if you, don't, if you believe in Santa Claus and all this kind of it was, I wasn't saying I was just being gracious and kind and talking about the birth of Christ, but it just, it just irritated them. It's like, what? can we just get onto the presents, get onto the food? And so some of you know this so well and, and yet just accept this, embrace this. Jesus said, this is the way it's going to be. And he'll grant you the grace. He'll grant you the grace to, to work through that. And, and, and hopefully you can maintain your testimony amidst that division. And, and God will use you to convict, right, those in your family that don't know Christ. So some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The Lord's time had not yet come, so no one was able to, to hurt him or arrest him. My mom used to always say growing up, can never forget God's man's immortal till God's done with him. God's man's immortal till God's done with him. Can't touch this, right? Is the, 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 the idea. Until God is done with a person, no one can touch you. No one can mess with you. Notice verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why do you not bring him? Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So you remember the, the Pharisees wanted to seize. They were the ones who wanted to seize him. Um, in fact, so much so that they had sent some of their temple guard, their officers, to arrest Jesus. Remember back in um, verse, trying to find it here. Uh, last week we saw this. Verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. They were scared that Jesus was going to get too popular. And they had to nip this in the bud. And so they had sent these officers, and, and yet they came back empty-handed. And so they were questioned, well, why didn't you guys obey our orders? Where's Jesus? And their only defense was, what, was, what, was they said that they had never heard anyone ever speak like Jesus spoke. And in the original language, when it says, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks, the emphasis is on man here, that this dude, hey guys, I don't know who you think this guy is, but he's no, man, he's no mere man. He's no mere man. And so instead of capturing Jesus, they were captivated by Jesus. And I think this was just a powerful testimony as one commentator said, to the force and eloquence of Jesus' address, for these were trained law enforcement officers under direct orders, but they had encountered a higher authority. And they knew it. And so they weren't about to arrest this guy. Notice verse 47, the Pharisees then answered them, you have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. And so here they go about scolding and, and shaming the officers and, and they angrily rebuke them and accuse them of having been deceived by Jesus. And basically what they were saying is, so what if some people believe in Jesus or believe that he's the Messiah? None of us do. And surely if he was, wouldn't we be the first to recognize it? We're the experts of the law. We're smarter than everyone else. I mean, what does this stupid crowd know? Uh, they're, they're a bunch of cursed people. They're just a bunch of ignoramuses. 
Can you believe that? I mean, that's nice spiritual leadership, isn't it? And in one way, these, these spiritual leaders, these religious leaders were right. They, they should have been the first ones to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah with all their knowledge of the scriptures, right? They should have known that. And they should have led the people in embracing Christ as the Messiah, but they didn't because they were spiritual snobs. They thought that they knew better than everyone else. Everyone else was wrong. They were always right. And so they were blinded by their arrogance. And ironically, it was them who would end up being cursed, not the crowds. Why? Because they superficially examined the facts, prematurely passed judgment on Jesus on the basis of their prejudices. And I think, again, many people today do the same exact thing. thing. They, they just kind of superficially evaluate the evidence about Jesus, they, they have personal prejudices that blind them to the truth about who Jesus is. And they're like, ah, whatever. Are you kidding me? I'm supposed to believe that? Well, by this time, there was one exception, at least, at least one exception among the Pharisees. Someone who was willing to lay down his pride and his prejudices and who had sincerely dialogued with Jesus face to face which made all the difference in the world, and his life was never the same. We know him as Nicodemus, verse 50. Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows that he is doing, uh, knows what he's doing, does it? And so not only were the Pharisees wrong, about who Jesus was, they were also wrong about their own, what their own colleagues thought about Jesus. Because again, there was at least one Pharisee here at this point who believed in Jesus. And John has already introduced us to him in chapter three. He was the Pharisee that had come under the cover of night, right? And learned that he must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And now we see Nicodemus for the second time in John's gospel. And here he is courageously challenging his peers that they were violating their own law by not giving Jesus a fair hearing. I mean, they'd already condemned him to death without examining his words and his works. Notice what he says. Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing. Do you realize that's what John's gospel is? It's an opportunity to, for us to examine Christ's words and his works. That's, that's what you need to examine when it comes to deciding whether or not you're going to be a follower of Christ. You need to examine his words and you need, need to examine his works. And that's what John wrote this book for, that we might, uh, he said, these things I've written to you, right? The words of Christ, the works of Christ, that you might know, right? that Jesus is the Son of God. You might believe, and by believing, you might have life. Notice how they answered Nicodemus. You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And so the rulers turned on one of their own and used the oldest debate trick in the book, right? If you can't answer the argument, just attack the speaker. And so they tried to humiliate Nicodemus by implying that he was on the same level as these, these unsophisticated and despised Galileans. In fact, they challenged him and said, listen, you're the master teacher, 
Remember it says that he was the teacher of Israel back in John chapter 3? Now this guy was maybe the main rabbi, the uh, most astute rabbi of the day. And he said, you're, hey, you're the master teacher. Show us in scripture where a prophet was to come from northern Israel, from the region of Galilee. Well, Jonah came from Galilee. Apparently they had forgotten that. In fact, I think it's in Isaiah 9, verse 1, where it prophesies that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from Galilee. The point is this, though. Whether or not Nicodemus had personally embraced Jesus Christ as his Lord and Master by this point, we don't know for sure. But we do see him tentatively standing up and speaking up for Christ. And eventually he would boldly identify with Christ as a, as a follower of Christ. In John chapter 19, after the crucifixion, it says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So we know that at the end of the day, right, when push came to shove, Nicodemus took his side. And, and he landed with Jesus to the point where he wanted to give him a proper burial. How about you? How about me? Are we willing to take a stand for Christ, to speak up for Christ, like Nicodemus at, at our homes, at work, at school? Maybe some of you need to be like Nicodemus here and, and come out of the closet, if you will, come out of the shadows of night and let people know you are a Christian in your home, at school, at, at work. And maybe you need to separate yourself from your peers and from your colleagues and, 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 and publicly identify yourself with Christ. I mean, do people know that you're a Christian at work? Do they know? Do they know that you're a Christian at your school? They should. And hopefully Nicodemus's example will inspire you, right, to just to just come out of the shadows and, and take a stand for Christ and speak up for Christ and not be ashamed. Notice how John ends this chapter. He said, everyone went to his home. <laughs> Sounds pretty anticlimactic, right? You see this tension rising, right? Like there's going to be a full-on battle royal take place and all of a sudden, oh, everybody went home. The Feast of Booths was over. The crowd peaceably departed. But we sense, right, through the text of this, of this gospel that the opposition to Christ was continuing to escalate at this rapid rate. And the Jewish leaders were more determined than ever to do away with him. And, and we know a showdown was in the making. And I would suggest to you this morning that there is a showdown in the making in our country today. And we need to be ready for that showdown. I appreciate one commentator who said this, quote, massive change is taking place today, a complete redirection of our culture. Those who follow Christ are going to find themselves subject to increasing pressure and alienation. 
The division that Christ brings is going to become more pronounced. The lines will be sharply defined. Do you feel that? Do you sense that showdown coming? He goes on, he says, the changes facing us in society demand that we become great drinkers of the water that only Christ gives for only those who follow him have great power and vitality in their lives. I mean, the only way we'll be ready to stand up against this, 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 this growing showdown, to survive the showdown, is if we're great drinkers of Christ. And in order to become a, a, a drinker of Christ a follower of Christ who has great power and great vitality, we need to come to Christ on his terms, not our own. We can't come casually. We, we must come carefully. I began this morning talking about a mythical fountain, the fountain of youth. And I want to end by talking about another mythical body of water, a stream that C.S. Lewis describes in his last a volume in his famous Chronicles of Narnia series, the children's fantasy novels. Um, it, it, the last book is called The Silver Chair. Anybody read The Silver Chair? Okay, some of you. You might recognize this. The story goes like this. A young girl named Jill sees a lion and is so scared and she runs into the forest. She runs so hard that she wears herself out and thinks she's just about to die of thirst when she hears the gurgling of a brook in the, in the distance. She approaches it and is almost ready to get a drink when she sees the lion lying on the grass in front of her and she freezes in fear. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Well, then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? Would you mind going away while I do? The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step further. Do you eat girls, she said. The lion responded, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step closer. I I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. Her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she'd ever tasted. Some of you are thirsty this morning, and you need a drink very badly, and if you don't get one, you're going to die. And it may seem scary at first. It was for C.S. Lewis. He called himself the most reluctant convert in Britain. That he felt like God had kind of drug him into the kingdom. And the whole time he was looking for a way to escape. And so it may seem scary at first to give your life away to Christ. But you need to step forward in faith and submit to Christ who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and drink from him. And if you do, you will have immortality. You will have eternal life.
Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it clearly reveals to us your son, Jesus Christ, who he is, what he did, what he said, and why he said and did what he did. Lord, thank you for this magnificent invitation to come drink Christ and to experience forgiveness of sin and the hope of heaven. And Lord, I pray that this this morning, Lord, your spirit would be working through this text to draw unbelievers to Christ, people that have up to this point never seriously examined the evidence for Christ or maybe have and are just scared to commit to Christ, whatever their case, Lord, that they would be drawn to Christ this morning, that you would grant them repentance and faith. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a great reminder for those of us that that know Christ, that have Christ in us, and we have received the Holy Spirit as part of our salvation. Lord, that you would continue to use us, Lord, just to impact the lives of others as we, just as the gospel just overflows out of our lives. The joy of our salvation would be evident to those around us in our homes, at school, at work, and you would give us opportunities even this week to share Christ with others. We pray this in his name. Amen.